Welcome to the Being Human podcast, brought to you by Relate Malaysia. Join us in our conversations about what makes us human and why we think and behave in the ways that we do. We'll talk about mental health, emotional well-being, and how we can sometimes feel on top of the world. And other times, like life calls for a large tub of ice cream and a big spoon. So come on in, relax, and let's explore this puzzle of being human together. Hello and welcome to the Being Human podcast. My name is Dr. Chua Suk Ning, and today I'm joined by Dr. Frederic Philippe, who is a professor at the University of Quebec at Montreal and holds the research chair on memory, aversive events, and mental health. Fred is an extensive researcher with interest in episodic and autobiographical memories, mental health, motivation, and sexual behavior. But today, we're going to be focusing on a topic that interests everyone, conspiracy theories. From the JFK assassination in 1963 and the moon landing in 1969 to the 9-11 conspiracies and the supposed schemas of Big Pharma, people are eager to assert their perspective of what is really going on. In the paper published in July 2021, titled Conspiracy Theories, a Public Health Concern and How to Address It, Lennon and Philippe explored the question of conspiracy theories and the significant consequences they can have on public health issues, such as we saw with the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic and the conspiracies that drove the anti-vaccination movement. It's an interesting topic for sure, and I'm delighted to have Fred on the show to discuss it with us today. Welcome, Fred. How are you? Hi, Sook. Thanks for having me. So I'm pretending like I don't know you, but for the audience, I do know you. And um, as a friend <laughs> and I uh, work together um, as graduate students and now as colleagues. And I would say he asked me, why am I not your favorite Canadian? And I said, Fred, <laughs> you are my favorite <laughs> Canadian. When you come on the podcast. And so now, Fred, you're officially my favorite French Great. Canadian. Great. <laughs> That's know, the only reason why I accepted to do the, the post. The I podcast. created a you know, separate just... category just for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's I'm touched. <laughs> okay, I you know that today we're talking about conspiracy theories, but you know as um in often our discussions we we touch on a lot of things. So you know let's have fun in today's conversation. So for our listeners out there, we're gonna this is just a um, a starting point, and let's see where this leads us and which rabbit hole we we go down to, just like the conspiracy theories themselves. So let's start with the paper. So in the paper, it mentions that conspiracy theories are narratives that can lead to violent radicalization via the thwarting of the universal needs of autonomy, competence, and relatedness. So let's start with what does that even mean, Fred? Why (laughs) such a complicated sentence? (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's uh, well it's, it's complicated and it's not in a way if, if you start with the idea that um public collective events will sometimes towards people's psychological needs um so whether it's a pandemic an epidemic or um uh whether it's a, a specific collective event like a natural disaster or a personal loss uh, these different types of events will toward people's mostly autonomy because 
the distress associated with these events will kind of disrupt people's sense of control of their life. And so they have to come up with something to a new idea to help them control their life. And so in a pandemic or, or whenever there's a virus that occurs in a society and that leads to a, an epidemic, um, we've seen like conspiracy theories appearing. And um, so whether it's about stress or whether it's about Ebola, conspiracy theories has uh, risen in the particular community in which it, it, it occurred. So that's pretty common. And so what we see here with the global pandemic is, is not surprising at all. Like you see these kind of events occurring whenever people's sense of autonomy is thwarted. So breaking down for us, um, I, I think some of us are not familiar with those terms. So uh, you mentioned autonomy, competence, and relatedness. So what what are these three needs? Okay. Oh, that's a good question. But you mentioned. But sure. I only mentioned I, autonomy. I, I, sure. <laughs> I was quoting you. <laughs> yes, I mentioned them, and now I'm turning it back to you because I was quoting yeah. your paper um, briefly. What What's the definition of autonomy, competence, and relatedness? Autonomy could be easily defined as just people's sense of control and especially sense of freedom and choice. So the idea that they are the um, locus of control of their life. So that means that they um, are in control of their life. That's simply what it means. And, and when you're con in control of your life, you're feeling that you can make real choices and that these choices will lead to specific actions and behaviors that are your own. The opposite of autonomy would be when you feel that someone else is controlling your action, forcing you and pressuring you to act in certain ways. So that would be the opposite of autonomy. So autonomy is not about feeling independent of other people. It's really more about this feeling that um, you are in control of your actions and behaviors, and there's no external pressure affecting it. So that's autonomy. Competence is more like the way we usually define it in our society is the feeling of, uh, well, feeling effective and, and competent in your actions, feeling that you can have a real impact on the external environment is also competence. And then relatedness, relatedness is the feeling that you feel connected to other people. Uh, uh, some people can take care of you and you can also take care of other people in return. So that's the uh, reciprocal uh, relationship that you, you have with other people. These are basically the three important psychological needs that when they are fulfilled, they facilitate they facilitate people's well-being over time. And uh, hundreds of studies have shown this including among Malaysians, because we have we have shown that too. Um, so if I understand this correctly, mm -hmm. that when people's psychological needs, especially you said autonomy, so especially when people uh, don't feel like they have freedom and choice or the locus control, feeling like they are um, in control of their own lives, then they are more likely to develop uh, these conspiracy theories or believe in these conspiracy theories. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because when a pandemic or a virus arrives in your collectivity, 
Well, you, you don't feel in control. You don't know what this is about. Um, you, you know, it's it's randomness. You know, in a way, it's you, you don't know what's going to happen. And so it threatens your feeling of autonomy, really. And that's really affecting it. And so you try to find something in your environment or to change in your environment or you change some things in your appraisal of the event. And so the easiest way is to change your perception of the event. You know, it's the less costly strategies. And one way is to say, oh, no, wait a minute. It's not random. It's not that dangerous. It's all a setup. It has been arranged by some people. And so it's not out of control, right? It's, it's just some, some people are trying to manipulate us. And so that really uh, reduced the threat from this random virus that was initially um, mentioned. It's more about there's a group of people who are controlling this. So it's not out of control. And I am now able to protect myself from this by not believing what they, they tell me to do. So that's a strategy to actually, it's just a, a way to regulate my autonomy, the, regulate the twiding of autonomy that I initially feel and regulate the negative emotion that I'm feeling because of this twart. That's basically it. It seems very much of that people are, you know, when you said changing their appraisal or changing the perception of the situation, is that trying to find a way to make sense of the situation. Um, and if they can attribute it to a known factor, like people aren't scary, you know, so I, I can attribute this to, okay, mm-hmm. humans are doing it. Then it, it becomes less scary. And I feel that sense of psychological safety again. My life is in control and I get to then be uh, sort of be able to determine, you know, um, what I want to do and how how life is going to unfold. But I have a question, you know, because as you were talking about conspiracy theories and viruses, then it occurred to me that but UFOs, what about mm-hmm. UFOs? You know, what, <clears throat> what threat is there? You know, what's happening that people believe, you know, conspiracy theories about UFOs? Yeah, that's the same thing, actually. And we could also talk about ghosts, a haunted house, you know, that's the same thing. If you have uh, lost uh, an important person in your life, a close other, well, it might be reassuring to believe that this person comes to visit you as a ghost. And it's a way to control the loss. So it's less uh, threatening than just believing, oh, well, this person has just disappeared in my life. And so these are different ways, like UFOs also are another way to control something, you know, because there's something out of control in this, right? Uh, it might be threatening to say, oh, you UFOs are coming to visit us and they might, I don't know, eat us or whatever. But you contain the danger into something that you you might be able to control, right? It's about UFOs. So it's the way you now have a mental representation of that threat. And it's contained into that mental representation. And you can have now strategies to prevent these UFOs from coming to Earth or whatever it is. But you have to then first believe that there are such a thing as UFOs. Mm-hmm. Right? So yes. it, it almost sounds like you're saying the threat matches the belief that is formed. 
you know, or are you saying that if if some any event, any event in my life that threatens my need for autonomy, that's just going to lead me to developing conspiracy theories about, you know, even unrelated issues, for instance? It matches the threat, but it also matches prior worldviews or prior personal perceptions that you have, prior experiences. So, for example, if we go back to conspiracy theories, there was before the pandemic, and these people who are believing in, in, in these theories, prior beliefs about how the world goes. You know, and, and this speaks about their worldview. So they were already believing that there are some mean people in their environment, mean people in the world that can try to manipulate you just for their own profit. So that's a worldview. And this I believe that has... too, Fred. There are mean people in this world. <laughs> I mean, well, that's pretty that, that speaks of your worldview. And this is, you know, this is something that you, well, I'm going to say you now. <laughs> this is something that you have developed over your experiences with the world, right? And, and it is, speaks about those experiences. Is there anyone who believes there are no mean people? I mean, honestly. That would be nice. No, no, they are they are mean people. But now we're talking about a group of mean people who would just do this over all the world, just for their own profit. You know, uh, I mean, of course, okay. company sometimes overlook people's well-being for their own profit. Of course, this we we know it exists, but there's a difference between a company trying to make money. And, uh, you know, a whole setup of a group of people with Satanists or, you know, yeah. uh, um, people who would really, their only aim would be to hurt other people. That's kind of, diff it, it requires a different worldview, right? Right. And there seems to be some, uh, um, you know, that group of people are shrouded in mystery and they're sort of operating in the shadows as if they have some hidden agenda. Yeah. And so prior yeah. to the pandemic, you're saying there are already these people who are more likely to believe in the truth of that and in, in that idea. And when an event such as the COVID-19 pandemic happened, in order to find then psychological safety, they sort of pulled from, you know, that belief. Is that is that what happens? They pull from that mm -hmm. belief to try to impose you and, know, structure the and world? Yeah, and that situation, which towards autonomy, kind of reactivate past experiences, memories of those kind of similar experiences where they felt not in control of the situation, where they felt rejected, where they felt ostracized. And these are the experiences that built their worldviews today. And so this is what is reactivated now. And this is why it leads to this belief. There's a projections of those past experiences into the outside world to explain uh, what is going on. So, for example, if, if you look at people who believe in conspiracy theories, most of them, most of them have experienced uh, ostracization or rejections, important, significant rejection when they were, they were maybe younger or or it just happened in their life, or major difficulties in their life. And whenever they face a situation like that, a stressful situation where they feel not in control, these memories will get reactivated and 
it will direct their behaviors in that situations and their beliefs in that situation. So they will be more likely to forge those kinds of theories and embrace those theories than other people who will not have those kinds of negative and, and thwarting experiences reactivated by the situation. So we tested this idea experimentally. We asked people to uh, read a vignette about the pandemic and about how people were uh, reacting to socio-sanitary measures. And there were three experiment experimental groups. There was one where someone was just going to the grocery store and trying to buy flour, and then he had forgotten his mask. And then the employee was like, oh, okay, it's okay, uh, but just do it quickly and, and you can pay for your flour and go, go outside. The second condition was like more moderately controlling and he, the employee was, no, 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 you cannot stay here. You cannot pay your flower. Just go outside right now. And the third one was highly controlling and was saying, oh, no, you, you, you will not pay for your flower. I will take a picture of you and call the police right now. Okay. And so after reading those vignettes, people, like one of them, people were randomly assigned. People were then asked, okay, but then describe memories that are related to the vignette you just read. And so people were describing personal memories related to this situation. And they rated their experience of need satisfaction or need thwarting in, in, in the event they just described. So some people could just relate personal experiences about the pandemic, but also about past rejections or things like that, or other situations where they felt controlled by an external person. And so two weeks later, we asked them how, how to the extent to which they believe in conspiracy theories. And it's the experiences that are reactivated by only the highly controlling condition uh, and the need thwarting in, in, in those memories that predicts beliefs in conspiracy theories, not the memories that are activated by moderate or neutral conditions. So it's really about the so it's really the interaction between the situation that you're facing and your own personal experiences. Mm -hmm. And if thwarting experiences are reactivated reactivated by a situation, you will be more likely to try to regulate that feelings of you that just popped up. And one way to do this is by these kind of theories, you know. I just read a very interesting paper that was just published that says people who are autonomously regulated are more likely to follow along the, the rules in an autonomously motivated fashion. And I thought that was very interesting and particularly bringing it back to your paper about, you know, that the situation and, and there's a person interaction. But in, in this case, everybody... I mean, the whole world was exposed to the same uh, situation, the same, you know, um, awful, difficult thing. And there are so many people with who come from, um, I guess, really, maybe they have experienced many negative life events when they were young, but don't then develop conspiracy theories. You know, so why is it that some people... Mm -hmm who experience negative life events are more likely to develop and believe in conspiracy theories, but then others don't, even if, you know, on paper, the events might look the same. 
yeah, we, we all have had negative experiences in our lives. And obviously, these negative memories are reactivated by a lot of situation, right? I mean, the last so time you gave would... me a negative comment on my paper, I thought, man, there must be a group, <laughs> <laughs> there must be a group out there <laughs> who are controlling whether my paper gets accepted or rejected. <laughs> Yeah, well, you could start believing this, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're more likely to do this, right? <laughs> yeah, more no, like, but... <laughs> yeah, more likely to just believe conspiracy. Yeah, so, you know, uh, but, but back yeah. to more, more seriously, what's the key difference between these two groups of people? Um, one And both groups of people have gone through a lot of difficult things, as you said, like yeah. everyone can identify yeah. negative yeah. life events. Everyone can identify a controlling yeah. person in their lives yeah. who made them feel small, who made them feel, you know, have no freedom, you know, in a very tight situation, very constrained. Yeah. But not everyone then believed in conspiracy theories in during the pandemic. Yeah, obviously. Some people have had like more negative experiences than others. So that's one way to respond to this is that those people might be more likely to uh, fall into this trap. Now, the second thing is that even though we, you have experienced a lot of things, there's some resilience going on, right? And so what is resilience? Resilience is I have integrated those negative experiences. I have elaborated them and I have been able to integrate those experiences into my identity in a positive fashion, in a positive way. So... I have been rejected at school or bullied. I have suffered a lot from this, but I understand today that the kids that were doing this to me actually had problems in their lives. And it was not really about me, it was about them. You know, it was about their negative feeling of themselves. And it was not about me. I, any, it would have happened to any other kid that would just around them. So that's, you know, one way to say my identity is not of someone who should be bullied. And my perception of the world is that other people suffer. They might suffer from mental health problems, and that might lead them to be mean to other people. And it's not because they want to be mean. It's just one way they try to adapt to their external world, and they are completely overwhelmed by it. And so you see, in, in one single experience, I've just expressed how I have integrated this event into my ident identity, how I feel stronger about this, and also it, how I develop a particular worldview from this experience. So that's called integration. I, I have integrated this negative life experience. Another way would be I did not have integrated this. So that would be in a positive way. That would be people are mean. This should be stopped or this should be put in jail. This should be killed. You know, whatever you, you, you think, you just feel this anger and you, you believe that it should be put onto these people there that have done this harm to you. And so this is the worldview you've just developed, but it, it doesn't make sense, right? It's not coherent with other things that are part of yourself, you wouldn't define yourself as an aggressive person. You wouldn't define yourself as someone who believes that uh, other people should be treated this way. But because of these experiences, that has forged that beliefs in yourself. 
and that belief is not harmonious with your other beliefs that that you have developed also so that would be like part of an integration that is negative so that would not be categorized as a positive integration that would not be what i call integration that would just be like it has just entered yourself your your person right it has just built something into your the person you are but not your identity your true identity or your true self and and so these experiences are really more likely than to keep being reactivated and lead to this kind of rigid behavior which would be like aggression in this case or or this anger will be felt again and so this is not what i would call integration so you see from two people experiencing the same negative event can react in a totally different ways and can develop totally different worldviews from the same common experience so that's the second way i would say that differs in in people i think you just described something really fascinating but also quite complex so i'm going to try to put it in my language and you can you can correct me Although sure. I, I think I got it right because I'm quite, I'm quite smart that way. Yeah, I know, I know. Right? I know. <laughs> I, I would be surprised you wouldn't get it. I'll be, be surprised too. I'm like, no, I think you misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> no, that's wrong. Okay, because I was thinking, I was trying to think about a negative uh, life event for me, and you know, one that I've integrated versus one that I didn't. Then what I think that um, my negative life event. For me, that's something that I think remains not fully integrated because I'm still trying to make sense of it. So something about integration mm-hmm. is almost like you can make sense of it. You know, you can you can yeah. fit it into your narrative. There's a meaning to it and there's a flow in mm-hmm. your life. You know, it's like, okay. So something that doesn't make sense, I think really disrupted my, I guess, coherency was, you know, when I was depressed and, and people... Uh, and then I experienced rejection during my pr- depression. Now I understood that I wasn't very fun to be around, but I had this view that if ever I needed help, people would be there. So mm-hmm. it might be a naive worldview <laughs> to others who are like, <laughs> what did you believe? That? But you know, it's something that I genuinely <laughs> believe, like, oh, okay, yeah. you know, like people will be there. And, you know, when I was depressed, I, I felt like so many people weren't there. You know, and it really mm-hmm. threw me off because I was like, hey, that doesn't make sense, you know, because what does that mean about what I believe? What does it mean about people now? You know, does it mean, as you said, you know, are people mean or do people not love me? Am I not loved? You know, um, what was I doing in my relationships? And it becomes like, I think the best way I could describe it is it's sort of it's a large rock in a river. It, it's sort of just jutting out there and, and it mm-hmm. stops the flow and, you know, the, the water yeah. can't pass through yeah. smoothly, right? But if you ignore it, yeah, I think you can live your life. But as soon as someone pokes it, you know, yeah. and you pay attention <clears throat> to it, you're like, oh, that's uncomfortable, right? And as you said, sort of the activation of that memory again becomes quite uncomfortable and can trigger a whole host of negative feelings. And so since then, you know, since since my... I don't know, the quite long episode of depression. It has been, I think, an interesting focus of therapy is trying to make sense of that, you know, not not trying to excuse what people did, but Mm -hmm. trying to understand the event, 
in a way that makes sense to me, that in a way that says, okay, people could care for me still. And maybe I just didn't feel cared for, or people could care for me still, yeah. but not care for me in the way I wanted. You know, that, that makes yeah. more sense to me than just, oh, everyone is lying to me when they say yeah. they care for me. We should say that becomes like sort of that rigid, really angry yeah. um, belief, you know, so it's a rock in the river. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I believe the meaning has to be self-suiting. You know, it has to be a meaning that helps you to see yourself as part of the world, as part of being in harmony with the rest of the world. If it doesn't play this sense, this meaning, then it's going to keep popping back, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to lead to rumination. Like, let's just believe that, let's just pretend that you, you, the meaning you, you made was people are selfish or, or just lying, you know, or people are liars. That, <laughs> that's not an integration, right? Because right, right. that would mean that afterward, every interpersonal relationship, every conversation you have with other people, you're always wondering, is this person lying to me? Mm-hmm. Is this person really authentic? And so this will never lead to true integration because you will be always in depth of the external world. And this is not self-suiting. Whereas if you just believe, well, um, maybe I was not asking for help, or maybe I was not showing uh, my distress to other people, and this is what prevented other people from uh, helping me, because I look so independent usually, and so people thought that I was like in good shape, uh, that I was uh, totally fine. And so maybe that's why people did not get that I was not feeling good. You know, that's a totally different meaning, right, about people. And that might say something about you, more something about what what you have learned from this would be, oh, next time I really want help from other people, I will just plainly ask them about that help. Or I will more openly show my distress, you Mm. know, so that people really get that I'm not feeling well. I'm not, yeah, I'm not feeling well. So that's two different meanings here. And one is really more self-suiting and it helps you get along better with the world. And the other one is more about just making more doubts. Mm-hmm. And that's not good because basic purpose of the brain is just to predict the external world. <laughs> and he's fine whenever something happens in the external world and he says, or she says, I'm fine with it. This is what I thought it would happen. You know, now the brain is is cool at that time. Yeah. But whenever there's something that it was not predictable outside, the brain doesn't like it. So he always, the brain's always forge mental representation about the external world, the external environment, so that the next time something happens, the brain will be able to predict it in advance. It will not be surprised. Unlike how you describe the brain as an independent entity. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can describe it as a machine, you know, so that's why I use this kind of external metaphor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was slightly different because I did openly, I think, ask for help. Although maybe I felt it was open, but my friends mm-hmm. didn't uh, think it was open. You knew me, you know, during that time of depression. So maybe I came across as very independent as well. But something that 
you know, as as I you, never knew, I never knew. <laughs> you never knew. I never knew you were experiencing this. Yeah. So. I know because it, yeah. it is hard to talk about it openly, right? So to you, it's so mm-hmm. obvious. Like I mean, to me, it was so obvious. Yeah. And to me, yeah. I was thinking like, wow, everyone could see it. But you know, as you're saying, like you didn't even know about it. And I think what happens is that. I like what you you emphasize on that it has to be self-soothing, you know, not not an explanation that other people gave you that you don't accept, you know, explanation mm-hmm. that causes you most distress is an explanation that makes sense to you, you know, mm-hmm. is consistent with your other values and consistent with what's important uh, in your life. And that will actually kind of put that foundation for you to then grow you know, and sort of mature and grow and to face new and different, even challenging experiences. There's something, you know, in, in bringing in memories. It, I think highlights how important it is in the process of therapy to look at these memories so that we open them up yeah. and not so that they don't remain rigid, you know, that they don't remain unexamined and just associated with pain and the world is bad and the evil place. But we open it up, examine it in a safe space so that we can figure out what to do you know, with these painful feelings and painful experiences and, and integrate them so that, you know, they won't be that, you know, jutting out rock in the, the river that's going to continuously over time and time and time again be triggering to us. Yeah, yeah. and the, the more you avoid those experiences, those painful experiences, the more they will get triggered again. Right. And lead you to the same feelings that you're trying to avoid. So that's the paradox of avoidance, actually, is that avoiding actually makes it happens more, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, in your life. And it's only with integration and elaboration that you can come up with something. And I really like your your, your metaphor of of a rock in water. I've copyrighted that already. (laughs) (laughs) You said it. How much do I own you? I'll send you a check. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I like this idea because it's true, right? Sometimes it's just a rock and you're just trying trying to avoid it, but the flow of the water cannot really avoid the rock. It will mm-hmm. always, you know, make a bumps, you know, in your in your river life, you know, if you will. But uh, sometimes the rock is so big that you cannot erase it. You cannot remove it from the lake or the river. But sometimes you can use it to reorient the flow of the water where you want. And so sometimes there are big events in your life that cannot be just toned down, right? It, right. It, will, it will be part of your life. It will be part of your river forever. You can move a little bit that rock so that the, the, the water flows in the direction that you choose uh, in your life. And so sometimes this, you know? this can happen. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's a yeah. new landscape. Yeah. 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 It's, it's not going to yeah. look the same, but it can be beautiful. It can be attractive. It can be purposeful, but it's just, it's just different. And we've kind of understood, you know, why some people are more likely to believe conspiracy theories. And you've also talked about, you know, what, how important integration is, but so given that, you know, we come back to our original topic of, <laughs> I know this is what happened. What was the topic I didn't, again? I, I, didn't warn, I didn't warn the listeners. We'll go, we'll go down the rabbit trail. Um, I can see like personally as a, as a clinical psychologist, what we could do in therapy to help people, right? 
But mm-hmm. what about from, you know, your paper talk about that this is a, a public health crisis, you know, this affects yeah. public health. What can governments do? You know, what can organizations do? Because they're not going to sit there and listen to your story and help you make meaning of these life events, you know. So what what do you think, you know, the Yeah, well, maybe they is? should. <laughs> maybe they should in a way, you know. <laughs> true. Yeah, but we'll go back to this idea later. But the first thing I would say is that it's avoiding confusion. The first thing is, is that. And obviously, it's difficult in a pandemic where nobody knows what's going to happen. And and there is a lot of, of uncertainty. But uh, the first thing would be avoid confusion. Make, make sure that your guidelines are very clear. Try not to change them over time. Because this greater confusion from a government will be perceived as greater thwarting of autonomy. So it will just add to the suffering of the population because of the the pandemic creating already this thwarting. So that would be one thing. The second thing would be transparency. So when you're not transparent uh, with your population, people will start having doubts about your actions. And so uh, make sure that uh, your recommendation, you, you you are always truly open to the population. If you don't know something, say you don't know it. Uh, like, for example, don't say, oh, uh, don't use masks. It's not important. Uh, cover face, you know, it's, it's, it's not important. And just because you don't want people to buy those masks, because you want to keep them for hospitals, for example. Don't use strategies like that. That will not orient people toward the good, the right direction. That would be like one important strategy for governments: be always open and transparent to your population, even, even if that means that this openness will have negative consequences. This is probably better than the negative consequences that will be engendered when people learn that you've you've been lying to them, because starting from there you lose trust in your government. And this is the beginning of the end, you know, because people cannot feel that they cannot trust you as a government. And so they will start believing other things than what you say. And those other things might be conspiracy theories. So trust in the government is really important, but it doesn't happen like that overnight. It's something that you build with your population and that starts with openness and transparency. And now the third thing is that yes, you could you could talk with people in your population that disagree with people who disagree with uh, your guidelines and recommendations, and so there's a need for a place for these people to be heard, and for the government to hear them and try to discuss with them without judging their opinions or beliefs. And, you know, starting to build this community, this relatedness is important to facilitate trust, but also for people to really feel that someone is really there to hear their concerns and trying really to help them truly, authentically. And this is really what has been missing during this pandemic is that people who were disagreeing with government guidelines and recommendations have been totally repressed, have been put aside or insulted. So it it was the total opposite of it. And knowing that ostracization can even 
increased belief in conspiracy. This is exactly what is happening is that these people are even more motivated giving this social ostracization going on now. They are even more motivated to believe in their conspiracy theories or other knowledge that they have or other ideas and beliefs. And so one way to limit this in society is to let people speak about their disagreements, hear them, and try to make sense of this uh, disagreement. Because like we were saying before, it's it's not about being right or wrong, right? It's about, I have had these negative experiences in my life that lead me to believe that this is just a setup. Okay, well, let's hear it, you know, let's. And this is part of elaborating those negative experiences within the society too. But trying to get rid of those ideas, avoid talking about this, or just pushing these people aside is not helping at all. It's just part of the problem, I would say. These are three things that governments can do. So just let me to repeat, so it's, it's consistent message. Uh, open and transparent and relating to the people, not just those yeah. who agree with you, but those who disagree with you. And I thought these were really yeah. good suggestions. I took issue with the first one, you know, as I often do, <laughs> taking issue with you, Fred, because it's so, it was, isn't it so difficult to be consistent during a time where, you know, when it first started, people said, well, we don't really know a lot about, you know, the, the COVID-19 virus and, you know, how could we have predicted mm-hmm. that? And of course, you know, there has to be changes, you know, as new knowledge is discovered. Isn't it maybe a little bit unreasonable to expect that the government could have been consistent in their messaging from day one? It is. It is. Obviously, it is. Because, you know, as I was saying, there's a lot of um, uncertainty uh, in those situations. But that means that given this level of uncertainty. That means that you should avoid making promises. You should avoid calling timetables and you should avoid uh, setting deadlines because if that means that you will have to change your mind, then that will lead to this inconsistency that we are talking about. So, or if you have to do this, if you have to say, well, um, we will uh, loosen these uh, measures in the population starting from February 1, for example, then just say there is 50% of chance that we will be able to uh, stop uh, enforcing this rule from February 1st. Because if you say, well, starting from February 1st, we will be able to open the restaurants again, for example, and you don't do it, then this is confusion, you know. So obviously you cannot always predict what's going to happen, but it goes with the second idea of be transparent. If you don't know, say it, you know. If you don't know for sure, or if you made a mistake, well, yeah. acknowledge it. Yeah, right. yeah. And I think, I think that has been uh, quite lacking. And I, I mean, I understand that it's been really difficult to navigate i think government during you know during a pandemic um, but we don't see many examples of that consistent well i mean obviously consistency hard but the transparent you know government or the transparent uh, policy makers who are willing to admit when they got it wrong you know to apologize yeah. that their decisions were costly to people 
you know, they made the best decisions possible, but, you know, when these decisions were wrong, they, they still were very costly and people suffered a lot, you know, and I think apologizing and acknowledging the hurt doesn't mean incompetency, but it does mean mm-hmm. a certain amount mm. of compassion and, and empathy for the community yeah. that is suffering. Um, and yeah. that brings us, I think, to just kind of wrap up on this last point, because I thought that was really interesting. And I, I've gotten these questions before of, you know, how do I persuade, you know, my parents, my aunt, my elderly um, friend that they should be vaccinated? But you didn't use the word persuade, you know, and when you're talking about relating, you you didn't, you said dialogue and to listen. Um, but often when people think, oh, I'm going to dialogue and listen, they really mean I'm going to persuade them, you know, and try to change their minds. And so could you maybe just differentiate for us what that is and what the end goal of relating then is, you know, if I don't want to persuade them, am I just supposed to sit and listen? And then is that all that I can do to protect my loved one? Yeah, that's such a difficult question because it has different responses depending on the angle you, you you take it in the, the fields uh, that you are studying. Um, from my perspective, I would say that we're, we're starting on the wrong foot by thinking how I can change one person's mind. You know, this doesn't really make sense. Why why do you want to change someone's mind? It makes sense in that situation, right? Because we have this. Uh, communal strategies of having everyone vaccinated, for example, to protect uh, the most people in our society. That's a collective goal that we're trying to achieve. And and we're hoping people will embrace that goal. And most of the time it works, right? Like usually, usually we, for other vaccine, we needed about 70% of the population vaccinated or 75%. And we were able to reach that number without forcing people to get the shot, you know, get vaccinated. And this is still, I believe, the way we should go with this. Now, the problem is that we're trying to get 100% of the population vaccinated. And that might be an impossible endeavor. That might be impossible. And perhaps we should acknowledge this, that it is impossible and come up with a different strategy, with a different public health strategies. Because I think we're doing a lot of harm to our communities by forcing people to get vaccinated. And we will uh, suffer the consequences of this for the next years to come, and maybe the next decades. So there are consequences in that. Uh, That might differ from countries to countries because Depending on the cultures of each country, uh, there are some countries that are more used to uh, certain types of uh, government guidelines, and some others are not. And there might be the countries where we will see the most important consequences. And so, yeah, that's a very difficult question to respond because someone in public health would say, oh, yeah, you, we should try to vaccinate like 100% of the population, but someone from a social psychological perspective like me, we'd say we will suffer consequences like psychological and societal consequences from that strategies in the next years to come. So what do you choose? Now, it's, so it's a matter of choosing the strategies that limit the risk the most possible. But what is the most important risk right now 
it's almost impossible to determine like is it the risk related to covid and that some people could die from this or is it the risk of what's going to happen to our societies in five and ten years but we still don't know about and maybe i'm wrong about this and so the risk related to covid might be really much higher so we don't know uh what i'm just saying is that we should keep that in perspective when we're using public health strategies like this and not only think about the current public health concerns because doing so we might be creating other public health concerns later on i think you know you said that was a very hard question but i think you answered it really well and and just pointing out the complexity of these sort of decisions you know the immediate one and that's taken on attention but also I mean you said we don't know but I feel like you think you know <laughs> that there are going to be social <laughs> social psychological consequences I, it's quite I think it is expected right that this kind of harm yeah. and I already see it um, with some clients who feel like they are being forced to um, be vaccinated and And of course, you know, both you and I endorse vaccinations, but yeah, I think it's how it's being done. Sometimes it's the, the goal can't just can't just be done with brute force. And I, I think mm -hmm. I think what you said about it's probably correct. Yeah, I think we maybe have to come to terms with that not everyone will be vaccinated. And just by brute force rather than through, you know, the different ways you've talked about, especially through dialogue. And that might be yeah. a longer way, but it might actually be the most effective way. And I think we have benefits for the whole society, you know, that yeah. we're actually creating a kinder uh, society that's willing to listen to diverse and divergent opinions rather than just canceling, you know, what we see now, just canceling everyone out. Um, we have become, I think, a more intolerant society. But on that note, you know, thank you so much, Fred, for talking with me. I think I, well, I had a really fun time and I hope yeah, you too. did too. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. And I'll probably invite you again. If you're nice to me and you pay me the copyright money. <laughs> yeah. And I, I won't forget about a check the for check. your rock metaphor. <laughs> the rock. And be our next paper, friend. <laughs> the rock and the river. <laughs> Well, that's a nice title yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us Fred. well it was my pleasure thank you for inviting me and thank you for listening to this episode of being human we'll be hosting guests on a regular basis so be sure to tune in for some more insights on how we can understand ourselves better and learn to live a life on our own terms and one that's meaningful to us my name is dr chua suk Ning. And I look forward to sharing some more valuable insights from the world of mental health with you very soon. Thank you for listening to the Being Human podcast. To find out more about Relate Malaysia's online therapy services, visit us at www.relate.com.my or email us at inquires at relate.com.my. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, remember, we are all more human than we are otherwise. Be kind to yourself and take care.